Hello, I'm Dr. Dan Ratner. As part of our how-to series on crushing doubt, today we are going to talk about how to understand the mind-body interpretation of muscle pain and how to cope with it in a way that can neutralize or shift it much more quickly than you might think. If you haven't already done so, hit subscribe, ring the bell for notifications, and as the video goes, put your comments and questions below as they come up. This is a video that is particularly near and dear to my heart because it is really the main reason that most people are here to follow me. I'm going to be talking about muscle pain and how to reduce it, change it, or even get rid of it altogether. So let's start with understanding where muscle pain comes from and where it doesn't. The first thing is muscle pain, of course, can come from physical activity. It can come from a blunt force trauma where you run into a brick wall or you're playing football and you run into a human being who's like a brick wall. You could get bruised and you could have soreness in your muscles. Exercise can also cause soreness in the muscles, of course, but I want to talk about the differences in how you can think about this to change the whole profile of how you experience it. So the muscle pain that I talk about comes from a different source. It doesn't come from injury. So I do like to say this over and over. If there was no blunt force trauma, if you didn't have a thing that you are well aware of where you ran into something or you slipped and fell on the stairs, in that case, I don't interpret it as you having an injury, and I'm going to explain why. Here's the other thing that you need to know about the physical process versus the mind-body process that I'm going to talk about. Everything heals. And as a result, if you're not getting better pretty quickly, that's an indication that you might want to think about it as a mind-body issue. Again, if you haven't had a, a very clear blunt force trauma and it's not healing, that's almost a guarantee that it's a mind-body process. You may want to check things out with a doctor, but if the doctor didn't find anything, this is something I say again and again, I really trust doctors to find things. It doesn't. They can miss things, yes. But the basic gist is, if they're not seeing something and you didn't have a specific injury that you can can recall or you were aware of at the time, which you naturally would be, and it's not healing, this is likely to be a mind-body issue. So we'll keep talking about that. So what is a mind-body issue? This is something where either your emotional life or your cognitive life, the way you're thinking, can lead to a cycle of pain. Now, what is happening? People argue different things about what's happening in, in the body. But the basic way you want to think about it is that your pain receptors are firing. They're firing from some emotional experience or some experience where you're not sure what's going on or you're having a fear response. There's all kinds of reasons that a mind-body issue can come up. Now, I talk about my three columns. I used to talk about four, but I realized that the action steps are really just something you put on each column. So the three columns are emotion, doubt, and power. These are three areas of your mental life that can cause a cycle in your body where the mind is causing a physiological response. We're going to get into each one of these and how to deal with them. So let's talk about uh, one thing that people often talk about when it comes to physical issues, which is repetitive use. People talk about repetitive use and they say, well, this can cause pain. Carpal tunnel syndrome is regarded as a repetitive use injury. And from a logical standpoint, I could see that being a totally logical argument. But as it turns out, the science 
does not match. And if you look closely enough at it, neither does the logic. And I'm going to get into why as we go. Let's get back to, though, the different models of understanding what is happening in the body. So I said pain receptors are firing. And I think that's a good uh, kind of general basket to put things in. But your body's doing a whole bunch of things all at the same time, always. And Dr. Sarno was the original person that I read about mind-body pain. And his idea of what was happening in the body with muscle pain is that it's about oxygen deprivation. Now, again, this is something that makes potential logical sense, and I'm not saying it isn't what's happening. But what I've come to see is that the mind-body process is so varied and so nuanced that it seems to me unlikely that there'd be just one physiological kind of experience that is leading to all of this. So I'm going to explain more about that in a second. But actually, let me first talk about the different models. Let me talk them straight out, and then I'll get into the way I think about it. Oxygen deprivation was one theory that was brought up. As people have studied this more, one of the theories that has come up, and these, these aren't exactly theories because they are happening, but the question is, are they describing everything? Another thing that is happening is that your neural pathways are getting activated. So as you have a pain response, the neural pathways that are talking to the brain saying, I'm having pain in this area, in this way, those neural pathways get strengthened. They are used to happening. You get into a habit, in other words, of having the pain. Again, these are the mind-body issues. I'm not talking about when uh, you get hit by a truck. That's a different thing. Although, hopefully, as long as you survive, don't have internal bleeding and that sort of thing, you will get better from that too. The body is excellent at healing. These are mind-body issues. Another model of understanding is that we have an overactive sympathetic nervous system. Now, what is the sympathetic nervous system? That is the part of your brain and body, your, your you know, mind body, it's just one thing, that becomes activated when you're in danger. Some people call it the fight or flight response. You are feeling in danger and your whole body acts like it. Your blood flow changes, your breathing changes, you've got an adrenaline rush, you've got cortisol pouring in, there's all kinds of things that come in. Now again, oxygen deprivation, that probably is happening. Neural pathways are changing. Yes, that's probably happening too. The overactive sympathetic nervous system, that all fits with what we're talking about. There's one other thing I'd like to mention though. When I read Candace Pert's book at Molecules of Emotion, I was trying to find out what is happening in the body. And I felt that this was an important point and I just want to bring it in here. She mentioned something called peptides. And Sarno mentions this too. In fact, I learned about Candace Pert from Sarno. Uh, though he just mentions her tangentially. I went and read her book, and the, the, the idea is that peptides are like neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are the things in your brain that communicate between cells. And we've learned that with dopamine and serotonin, the, those are just neurotransmitter examples. This is how the brain communicates with itself. Well, peptides are the way that the brain communicates with every cell in your body. This felt like an important finding to me. Because what it meant is, aha, there really is a mechanism, not surprisingly, where the brain communicates with the body. Now, of course, that's true. The brain tells you to move your arm and it moves. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even know I was going to do it. Um, so the brain is a, an incredibly powerful computer, essentially. It is the most powerful computer. And if there is a mechanism by which it can control any cell in any given second, that felt like an important piece of knowledge. So 
The fact is, all four of these ideas, and maybe even some others, they're all happening at the same time. But it's important to understand what's happening in the physiology and how your mind can alter these things. So now let's talk about what happens when you're having pain. Um, first of all, it's important to identify, is this a mind-body issue or not? Now, I will tell you, 99% of pain, probably more, is usually a mind-body issue. Now, people listening to this will probably think, what are you talking about? We hurt ourselves all the time. Yes, we do. But the mind is very active. And you can have all kinds of mind-body responses. An itch or the urge to sneeze sometimes can be related. In fact, oftentimes is related to a mind-body issue. There's all kinds of things happening. I'm going to talk more about that in other videos, but I really want to get to what do you do when you're having muscle pain? The first thing, when you've identified it as a mind-body issue, is that you need to start thinking in terms of emotion instead of in terms of physicality. Now, that's easier said than done. You're hurting, and it, and believe me, I say this all the time, mind-body pain hurts worse than any pain I've ever had. So if you are saying to yourself, how can it hurt this much if it's from the mind? Now, remember, it's not in your head. It's not fake. It's from the mind and becomes real in the body. It is the most painful experience I ever had. But you do have ways of disabling that pain. So here's one way to think about it. If this is coming from emotions and thought, first of all, it means you have a chance at some control over it. When you're thinking about it in terms of an injury, a herniated disc, arthritis, any structural issue, you don't feel like you have any control over it. And the good news is you're not right about that. Those structural issues have been proven not to be correlated to pain. I'm going to get into the research of that shortly. So the way I think about this is, okay, Mind-body pain can hurt you, but it can't harm you. And that's a way of reducing that fear response, that fight-or-flight response we were talking about. This cannot cause long-standing damage to you. You're not going to be damaged by it. It's more a process that's happening over and over and over. The pain receptors are firing, and we can learn how to shut them off. Easier said than done, but it is possible. So the first step is to recognize something that Sarno talked about. Sarno talked about how emotions can be so painful that we can sometimes generate, as a psychological defense, physical pain and other symptoms in our bodies to distract from that emotion so that you don't know about it. But here's one difference I have with Sarno, and many other people have voiced similar things. I think that the pain is also a communication. In fact, I think even more than a distraction, it's a communication. It's trying to tell you that you are either scared of something or bothered by something. Something's not sitting right with you. And if we can start to pay attention to those emotions and understand them, that's a big help. Now, Sarno talked about rage, anger, as the key emotional variable in that equation. I don't disagree with him, as is often the case all of these people are saying, or many of these people are saying great things, but they're having, they're, they're, to me, it felt like they were pieces of a puzzle, and I had to find out more about it. So rage, hurt, even sadness, these are emotions that can sometimes be ones that we either want to bury or that we're actually communicating to ourselves about it. So the first thing to do, very first thing, when you know it's a mind-body pain, 
is to think emotionally. What is happening? And the key with that is to start thinking about the timing. The onset of pain or the uptick in pain is always emotional in nature. Something happened right there, and I'm telling you, the body doesn't lie. So take it at, take it at its word and see if you can figure out what's going on. The way that I do that is I have a set kind of um, number of themes that I've come up with for myself, and you'll have to do the same, that are usually the types of things that lead to pain. It could be uh, I'm getting uh, disrespected in a way that makes me feel invalid. Or it could be no matter how much I talk, nobody's listening. Uh, That's probably one of the reasons I do this podcast. People are listening and it feels good to me. I mean, I'm helping other people, I hope. So that's the main reason. But we all have our reasons for things. So you need to start thinking about your emotional life and how it could be leading to pain. But there's a difference between emotional pain and pain that comes from what I call doubt. The difference in those is that emotional pain is about the onset and uptick of symptoms, and it's about a specific emotion. Whereas doubt is usually more related to chronic pain. It's pain that just won't go away, or maybe it's nagging and it keeps coming back. What is doubt pain actually about? It is about the fact that you are thinking in such a way that cements those neural pathways, cements the fight-or-flight response, cements the pain receptors firing, or maybe even oxygen deprivation, or the peptides moving, however you want to think about it physiologically. It cements it so that the way you're thinking about your body is either I'm injured, I'm not going to get better, I don't know what this is, so then why would I get better? These are the pains that come from doubt or the ways of thinking that lead to the pain that comes from doubt. So, Let's talk about the difference uh, or the way to think about doubt pain that's different from emotional pain. Emotional pain can be momentary and it can hurt a lot. But typically what happens is emotional pain eventually starts to lead to doubt pain because you don't know what it's about and you don't know how to deal with it. So let's talk about chronicity. Chronicity, just as a basic definition, it means it's there all the time. Chronic means it's there all the time. But there's two ways of thinking about chronic issues. One is it's there all the time because there is a structural issue or an injury that isn't healing. Well, I'm telling you, injuries do heal. The only thing that doesn't heal from injuries are things like internal organs. You could have an injury to your liver or your pancreas or your heart, and that is not... I mean, look, it will recover some, but we know that internal organs are so delicate, they don't recover as much. What we're talking about today is muscle pain, though. The musculoskeletal system, it all heals. We're like Wolverine. We don't heal as fast as him, but we really do always heal. There's never anything that doesn't heal. So why would we have chronic pain then? To me, that's a fascinating question, and if we really believe that the body heals, which I do, then we have to ask, why are we having a chronic experience? And if it's not structural, how do we understand it? Because it is happening. People have chronic pain where it's there all the time. So what I like to talk about is something called moment-to-moment thinking. Chronicity of pain can be seen as something that just is immovable and always there. But the way I like to think about it, and I, I, not only do I think I'm right about this, but I've been proven right by the results, 
is that chronic pain is something that happens second by second by second or millisecond by millisecond. And as a result, it's unbroken. You don't see any difference. It's happening every single millisecond. But the thing is, the brain moves so fast that it can renew that over and over and over and over and over and over for the rest of time. So it certainly looks chronic, but it's an important distinction because what you do about it is very different. If you're having mind-body pain, you are having what I'm talking about, the moment-to-moment chronicity. It's happening every second. Your brain never shuts off even when you're asleep. So we have to start to deal with those aspects of things. Again, when it comes to emotion, if you can figure out what the emotional theme is that's getting to you, that emotional awareness disables the unconscious system that is both communicating to you and distracting you at the same time. I know that sounds a little confusing, but the unconscious does not mind contradiction. If you identify the emotion, the pain tends to evaporate. If you've hit on the right emotion and it's not evaporating, the chances are you're having doubt. So we're going to talk about how to deal with doubt. Now, one thing I need to talk about with respect to doubt is triggers. Triggers are things in the external environment that could lead you to having doubt or could get you into pain thinking. And that could be that you're shoveling snow, let's say, uh, and somebody walks by you and says, oh, you know, lift from your knees or your back's going to hurt in the morning. Well, they've just given you a trigger. It's something that makes you primed for pain. And we do this to ourselves. Other people do it to us. Society does it to us. Our actions do it. You know, if you are lifting heavy groceries without thinking about it, your brain knows that's a trigger. And if it needs to enact a pain sequence, it's got something that it can latch onto that you're going to doubt and that it's going to use that. So... Again, with emotional themes, you want to think about the timing. But if it's dragging out and it's chronic, what you want to start doing is disarming all of these triggers. You have to do some self-talk. You have to say to yourself, now really, is my body so weak that I can't carry around some groceries without getting sore? Well, the fact is, yes, your body is strong enough to do that. Your body's strong enough to do all of these things. It's strong enough to shovel snow for a long time and believe it or not, not get sore. I know that may sound illogical, but we've been trained to think that way. What I do in talking to people is to train them to think of their body as very strong. And to me, this makes a lot of sense and it will add up as I go through the evidence. I'll get into that. But here's something you can do to disarm some triggers. I say this all the time. Don't test. Now, what do I mean by that? You see people all the time where they're having neck pain and they're going, Oh, God, it hurts. That's testing right there. It's essentially what they're doing is they're saying, is it still there or why is it? So the problem with that is it gets you thinking purely physically again. I want you to return to emotional thinking and cognitive thinking, just what's going on in my brain. I want you to think of your body as one gigantic brain. If you're doing that, you won't be testing your neck. Because your neck is just part of the system. That's just the the part that is showing the symptom. So you want to be thinking emotionally only at first. And then you want to start thinking about the cognitive issues that are coming up. What doubts am I having? What questions am I having? What confusion is there? And what fear is there? And you want to start to counter all doubt. But 
the ways that you do it do require some knowledge about what to do. Don't test. Don't test it out and see, is it hurting? I promise you it's still hurting. <laughs> you, you haven't disabled it yet. You don't need to test it. And, and stretching it out and things like that is actually not going to help. You want to think emotionally and you want to recognize where the pain is really coming from. It's coming from the mind. Again, not fake, not made up, but it's coming from the mind. Another thing you can do to uh, start to disarm the pain response is to recognize shallow breathing. A lot of times we don't realize we're breathing shallowly. But this happened to me within the last couple of days. I even have a little bit of pain right now, which is great for this video. You know, I could be testing it. And I can feel it's actually a little bit like uh, swollen. There's a little bit of um, inflammation there probably. But what's it coming from? It's coming from the mind-body response. And I recognized I was breathing shallowly. What was happening is I had a lot to do and I was rushing through it and I stopped breathing deeply. Amazingly, we're able to function on shallow breathing. We get plenty of oxygen anyway. But what we don't get is enough, I mean, we're getting less oxygen that way, so Sarno's oxygen deprivation certainly does hold true in that regard. But we're also setting in motion the whole fear response. Our whole sympathetic nervous system is up. If we're, if we're breathing shallowly, that actually means you're scared, or you have doubt, or you're stressed. People say this all the time, stress causes pains, or, or they don't say that actually, they say stress causes uh, physical issues, but they don't get specific about it. I'm showing you specifically what happens. The breathing gets shallow. You're getting less oxygen to those muscles. Oxygen deprivation to muscles does make muscles sore. There's something called lactic acid that comes in when you're not getting enough. And that's why that soreness comes in. So you can get it for mind body reasons too. These are all examples of things you can do to get yourself started on thinking about the mind-body process as opposed to the physical process. Here's another one. Sarno talked about this and he was so right. If you're having soreness in your neck or your back or really any muscles, one thing to check out, and this might sound kind of funny, check out your glutes, your, your butt muscles. That is where this all begins. It is the seat of pain, as they say. And, well, they don't say that, but I guess I say it. You have a lot of pain in your glutes when, you, when you're having this happen. I don't know why it's happening, but I do think that's where the expression a pain in the ass or a pain in the butt comes from because it is the first place that registers it. So feel there. You probably weren't registering it. If you feel it there, that's going to be confirmation of what we're talking about. I want to jump back to breathing for a second. How do you deal with shallow breathing? Well, to deal with shallow breathing, you have to stop doing whatever it is you're doing. Now, you may not be able to do it in that given moment, but when you have a chance for a break, you got to stop doing. This is one reason why therapists schedule breaks in between sessions. First of all, we need to emotionally process what's going on, but also you got to stop doing sometimes. And a lot of times people will say, no, 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 I need to write up a note during that, or I need to make a phone call. Listen, there are times where you need to stop, even just for a few minutes to begin breathing again. So... I just did an interview with Dan Buglio, who is a mind-body coach, and he brought up an idea that uh, is certainly something I've talked about before, but it crystallized something for me, which is that attention is a very key issue for dealing with muscle pain. When you are attending to something, all the blood flow goes there. Your whole mind is on that 
that place and it makes the pain receptors fire even more. So you want to get attention off of it. And that is easier said than done, but thinking emotionally is one of the key ways you will just get attention off of it. You'll stop thinking of it as a physical experience. That's why you don't want to test. That just brings the attention back to it. You want to think emotionally and cognitively. You want to go in and disarm all the triggers of your belief system. Okay, so that there's many different aspects that are triggers. People could think, well, if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to have muscle pain. Listen, sleep is great. But right there you've identified, or I've just identified a out of thin air idea that could lead to pain just by simply believing it. If you think, well, I slept too long, that could be a problem. I'm sitting in a chair that's too hard, or I'm sitting in a chair that's too soft. We all have these individual belief systems, and you have to identify yours and start to disarm them with science and logic. Now, one little tip on triggers. Try not to rush into triggers. I tell people this, uh, into, uh, sorry, you shouldn't rush into contradicting triggers um, physically. It's okay to do that. In fact, resuming normal uh, physical activity is very important for convincing yourself, I'm actually okay. You might go for a run for five minutes and say, hey, I was fine. Well, if you're fine then, logic would say that's not actually the issue. And now we're identifying what is. But if you're having trouble with that, you can give yourself a break. You don't have to rush into uh, confronting all of the triggers because triggers can be very strong and then they can lead to a bodily response that makes you have more doubt. So be careful with those. I usually say that's the last step. You want to get into the emotions, then you want to get into uh, disarming triggers just in terms of your, your mental belief and contradicting all doubt getting your questions answered. These are the things that happen before you go to triggers. So when I had my uh, eight-year bout with back pain, the last thing that I did was to get back on the basketball court. I wasn't ready. It was too scary. It would have elevated everything. So give yourself a little bit of a break. Take your time with triggers. Work on the emotional system and your doubt experience just in your mind before you actually go dealing with the triggers. But if triggers come up, you can contradict them right then. Obviously, you're not going to wait for them because they're already there. So if we conquer any and all doubt, what does that do? It, it gets you to a point where you aren't afraid of it anymore. You know what it's about. And that disables the system and makes the pain drain out. Now, again, with emotion, the pain could go away right away if you understand that it's an emotional issue and you pinpoint what that is. And that's because this is a second-by-second -second experience. With chronic pain, that's harder to break, but as you start to do this, certain moments you'll have less pain. And, and you'll know that's just from thinking. So the, the armor starts to break down around the chronicity, and you start to see it truly as moment to moment. When you really believe this, it does start to go away, and that's because you're changing your, your mind, and that changes your body. So another key variable in fighting back against all the doubt you're going to have is science and logic. That's what I fall back on every time. This is not voodoo. This is not, we're not witch doctors here. We are looking at things that actually exist and actually that societies have known for millennia, actually. If you look back through the history of literature, everybody says this stuff. What happened is we started seeing images and we thought that the images were smarter than us. We started to see 
well, here's a little tear here. That must be what's causing it. But the fact is, it doesn't actually own up. There are specific studies that show us this, and we've seen this over and over and over. If you Google what causes back pain, you are going to get two, uh, two types of articles. Uh, actually, you want to, what you really want to do is, is Google does, does, really something like do herniated discs cause back pain. If you, if you search that, or does arthritis cause pain, you're going to get two types of articles. You're going to get research studies that show that they don't, and you're going to get lots of people claiming that they do. That's an important thing to say. The evidence is all on the side of mind-body medicine. All of it. There's very, I haven't seen anything that suggests that these things, these structural issues actually do cause pain. And there's evidence out the wazoo that it's not true. Maureen Jensen did a study, I believe it was in the early 2000s. This is when we started studying asymptomatic people. When I had Georgie Oldfield on, she talked about that we started studying asymptomatic people in the kind of mid 90s. And that was very important because we were only looking at people who were hurting. And then we were finding findings that seemed to fit. They didn't always fit, but they fit often enough that people could say, oh, well, it seems like that causes a problem. Well, it turns out it's not true. If they study people who are not having pain, their MRIs can look like train wrecks. And if that's true, how can we logically think that those findings on MRIs are usually the cause of pain? It doesn't actually make any sense. There are other studies I want to mention. Bruce Mosley did what was called a sham knee surgery study. Um, essentially, he compared two different types of actual knee surgery to a group of people where they made an incision in the knee. Of course, they, you know, they, were, they were put under. An incision was made in the knee, and it was sewed right back up. They never did a thing. A year later, the people from these three groups showed no distinction in how much better they did. So we're finding out these surgeries don't actually work. Dr. Sarno has a, uh, I was going to say it's famous, but it's really just famous with me. As I read Sarno, one story has always stuck with me. It was an old man who came in, he had terrible pain in his hip, and Sarno did an x-ray, and he had tons of arthritis. But Sarno, being the smart man that he was, said, do me a favor, I want to do an x-ray of your good hip. And he did that, and there was tons of arthritis, pretty much the same thing, in the hip that wasn't hurting. Well, logically speaking, that doesn't make any sense to say that arthritis is causing that man's pain. And if it's not causing his pain, shouldn't we call into question whether it's causing other people's pain? And the fact that they've studied more and more and more of this, it has been found to be an incidental finding. I can't believe it myself because I think of arthritis as synonymous with pain, but it is not. And the thing is, doctors know this. The American College of Physicians in 2017 released a statement saying, we do not know how to deal with chronic pain. Our solutions are not working. Well, what does it mean when solutions are not working? It means you have the wrong diagnosis or the wrong treatment, or maybe both. They know that they have that, and I give them credit for saying that, and it's helpful. They said, go to chiropractors, go to acupuncturists, go to uh, you know, alternative uh, forms of treatment. And the one problem that we're having is that doctors aren't listing in, in that category mind-body treatment. And mind-body treatment is this nebulous thing because doctors have to wade into the psychological some to understand it, or at least the, the, 
physiological process of the mind. And psychologists have to wade a little bit into the physiology of the body to understand. That's part of what I do. I've waded into it. Now, one other study I want to mention here. Uh, there was a woman named Ellen Langer. She did a study in 1981. And this study uh, was done at Harvard. It's a great study. She took a bunch of, uh, I think they were between 79 and 81. I'm not sure why she chose that, but that's that's what it ended up coming to be. Um, maybe it was because they were, were tired and had time to do this. But she wanted to see what would happen if she changed the thought process of people and how it would change their physiology. So she took... Um, a handful of 79 to 81-year-olds. She took them on a retreat at a Buddhist monastery, and she had two different groups. One group actually pretended that it was 1959. They watched commercials from 1959. They talked as if it was 1959. And she I'm not sure why she chose that, but she wanted to see uh, some precise changes uh, in what would happen in their bodies. The other group just talked about that time period, but they didn't pretend that it actually was that. And what she found is that the group that actually pretended and kind of sank into that reality, that when she took the vitals before and after these events over five days, that their vitals were all significantly better. Now, what does that tell us? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily suggest that we have such control over the mind that we can be, you know, an 80-year-old person and function like a 60-year-old person always. But what it tells us is that physiology is always changing with the mind. That's the moment-to-moment experience right there. The lack of success in these other methods is evidence uh, that we have the right ideas. In fact, the great success that mind-body treatments have generally had shows we understand what's happening more. I'm not saying it to brag. I'm saying it to put to tell you if you're on to this kind of treatment, you're on to the right thing. So those that's the way to deal with the doubt as to whether this is a mind-body issue. But there are other forms of doubt. There's this kind of doubt, which is, all right, I believe I have a mind-body issue, but can mind-body issues actually be made to be better? Well, from a logical standpoint, it doesn't actually make sense that it couldn't because all we need to do is change the thinking. I'm not saying that's easy to do. But we do have the mechanism. Now, it is interesting. This kind of treatment, you have to believe that it can get better for it to work. It's different than when you're taking antibiotics. Antibiotics work whether you believe it or not. But this is a process that involves your mind. So you have to get control of that process in the mind to get better. But the good news is we're right. We have all the science and logic on our side. And we're gaining more and more experience of people talking about having got, gotten better. We have a testimonial series on this channel. You can check it out and hear about pe- how people got better. I'm one of these people who got better, so I can talk about it. The third level of doubt is the challenge of believing that you yourself can get better. We have lots of doubts about ourselves and our own capabilities. And there's lots of challenge that we face in that. So you have to get to a point where you believe that you can get better. And these rules of thumb are very helpful in a number of ways, uh, as I've seen it. But 
Let's talk about the challenges that we face in believing that you can get better. Well, first of all, there's a lot of loneliness in getting better from mind-body issues because the whole world generally doesn't think this way. And I remember thinking, well, everybody's going to think I'm crazy. When I started to write a book on it, I thought, uh, okay. It felt almost like coming out of the closet, I imagine. Uh, I don't mean that to diminish the experience of coming out of the closet because I think it's much more significant than what I experienced in coming out of the closet as a mind-body practitioner. But the whole world disagreed. And to stand on your own and not have doubt is hard. There's also, there's too many voices and there's too many answers. How do you sort it through? Well, this is where logic and science are so important to me because if we can hone it down to a consistent message that always makes sense, then sure, maybe those voices bring in a part of the truth, but you've got to get your confusion and questions answered. You can rely on me for that. You can put your, put your questions and comments below. I will answer them directly. You can send me an email at dan at crushingdoubt.org. But it's not just me out there. There's other people who can answer. But I will say, my system is designed to get the full picture of an answer because if we have partial answers, that doesn't help you enough. As I said, we also have triggers everywhere, society weighing in everywhere. We have too many possible sources of pain. And, and this is why you need a system. This is why rules are important. And this is why I'm talking to you about how to do these things. So... On top of it, you know, when you're having chronic pain and it's unbroken, you'd naturally doubt as to why it would get better. But the thing about a system is, that, first of all, the system has to make sense. If the system doesn't make sense to you, it's not going to work. So you need to challenge that system. I tell people all the time, take my theory and try to shred it. Do everything you can to tear it apart. I'm very confident it holds together because I've looked at this every which way in getting better myself. So a system re reduces fear. And we know that if fear is a major part of what's causing this, fear, confusion, doubt, questions, all of these things must be answered to your satisfaction. And that will bring that whole fear response down. It'll get you out of that loop, the mind-body loop that keeps it going second by second by second. So one other thing I want to talk about is power. That's the third column I talk about. Power is another way that you could either be feeling afraid or not afraid. If you're not feeling powerful, that's going to make you feel afraid. If you're feeling quite powerful and in charge, that's going to reduce fear. So that's another aspect. I'll talk about that in other videos, but I just thought to mention it here. So here's the question in terms of can you get better from this? Are you really different from everyone else? No. You can use this same process. Anyone can use this process. It doesn't matter who you are. What you have to do is figure out what's going on in your mind that's leading to the emotional cause that leads to the onset of symptoms or the uptick of symptoms. And you have to figure out what's causing you to doubt. And there's a lot of it. And I can help you articulate that and then answer it. So why haven't you gotten better? Let's talk about people who have gone pretty far down the mind-body path, which many people have. Why haven't you gotten better? Well, I think it's because we often don't have the right information or it's not organized the right way. So as an example, um, a lot of people are thinking about the emotional side of the experience, but they don't know about the doubt side of the experience. Maybe they're aware of it at some level, but they're not dealing with it in a way that 
allows them to recognize the full picture. So you haven't been getting better because you haven't had the right information. So one of the reasons I like what I do is that I talk about doubt in a way that no one else does. I talk about it much more specifically. I make it a much more central part of what this is all about. I just talked with somebody yesterday about the fact that she she and I both felt that she's kind of been on an, a, an emotional wild goose chase, looking for the key emotion that was causing it when it was doubt all along. It was not emotions. Those emotions were long gone. The onset of the symptom, yes, was emotional, but you don't need to know that. You need to find out about doubt, find out how to reduce it. So what you need is the right information and what to do about it. I've given you some tips in here. I will give more tips in other other places, but you know the idea of like don't test out things like that. Thinking emotionally, uh, articulating your doubt, getting those questions answered—they're legitimate questions. Everything you have, so you've got a lot of what you need now. It's going to take some work. It's going to take a lot of questions, not answers. It's going to take the questions to get better. So. I've got a system. I have these PDFs you can also reach out to me for. There is a small fee for them, but they're well worth it. One of them is the basic uh, the basic mind-body uh, system and how it works. Another is action steps. So if you're really interested in what do I do, that action step PDF is great. It's got about 140 different ways of thinking about things or things to do. It's more ways of thinking about things than anything else that can reduce your doubt or help you pinpoint your emotions or help you become more powerful or recognize your lack of power. These are important action steps. I've done all of them at various points. So feel free to reach out for those PDFs as well. You're going to have to figure out your system, what works best for you. I said a lot of things in here. And one of the reasons we have these videos is you'll be able to go back to this and review it. But some of these things are going to help you more than others. You're going to have to find out which ones are part of your solution. Each one of you has a different mind, and that means we have to work with it differently. But each one of you also works the same in that this the system is the same. We all have a mind-body system, and it's emotions and doubt and power. Those are the things that cause this. So I'm very excited to bring you this information, and I encourage you to reach out to me. Put your comments below and comments and questions, and I'll, I will answer directly. If you haven't already, click subscribe and ring the bell for notifications and keep working at it. Don't get discouraged. Remember, doubt plays a much more key role than a lot of people understand, really most people understand. So if you're, you haven't gotten better, it just means you don't have the right information yet. And I think this is a big part of the solution. Thank you for watching.